This production is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh. Welcome to this, the, the sixth and the final in our series of Gifford Lectures for 2008 to 2009. I'm Stuart Brown. I'm Professor of Ecclesiastical History and Deputy Convener of the Gifford Lectureships Committee, and I will be chairing again this evening. Our Gifford Lecture is Professor Diana Eck of Harvard University. The theme of her Gifford Lectures is the Age of Pluralism. We've been following with deep interest the unfolding of this timely and compelling series of lectures, and we look forward with great anticipation to Professor Eck's final lecture this evening. There will not be questions after this evening's lecture. Professor Eck, could I now invite you to present the last of your Gifford lectures on the subject of the pluralism within. Professor Eck. I've spoken over the past week of what I call the new geo-religious reality of our world, a world map that today is not color-coded, actually it never really was, but not color-coded at all by culture or religion, but increasingly marbled with the colors and textures of the whole. So too, the landscapes within. Our students and colleagues, even we ourselves, may be Christians who study the Bhagavad Gita, Jews who practice Buddhist meditation, atheists who are devoutly religiously, one might say, devoted to the health benefits of yoga practice. From our research in the United States, we know that there are Cambodian Buddhists in Boston who attend church on Sundays and keep a Buddha altar at home. There are Hindu families in Tennessee who celebrate Christmas with a tree and with gifts and have a Jewish son-in-law. And there are Christian Jewish married couples who somehow balance creatively, sometimes not successfully, two traditions. So how do we describe and understand these border crossings in our midst, in our families, in our minds, and in ourselves? Do we use words like syncretism, hybridization, convergence, the Latino term mestizaje? What are the forms of engagement with difference the pluralism that are part of our individual lives and our inner worlds. Let me once again take a step back a hundred years or so to gain a perspective on the situation in which many of us live today. William Sturgis Bigelow, born in 1850, died in 1926, was a well-bred Boston Brahmin, a Christian, born to wealth and position, who went to Harvard College and Harvard Medical School and who became Boston's first Buddhist. He was supposed to become a doctor, but he became attracted to the Japonisme that was thrilling the art world in Paris, and he decided to go to Japan. So in 1882, Bigelow went to Japan and joined art collector Ernest Fenollosa in what would become for both of them a deepening interest in Buddhism and in Japanese art. They would eventually bring the core of the Japanese art collection 
to the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. In Japan, Bigelow became a practitioner of Buddhist meditation in the Shingon tradition. Eventually, at Homyoin Temple, he, quote, received the Buddhist precepts, marking a formal initiation into Buddhist practice. He stayed seven years in Japan. He received as guests there quite a few of the cultural elite of Boston. No one in those days spoke of Christian-Buddhist dialogue, but it was clearly going on within Bigelow himself. After the visit of Boston's charismatic Episcopal Bishop Phillips Brooks in 1889, Bigelow wrote to him, Living off here in Japan, one is always grateful for the importation of a strong charge of home magnetism to set one's compass by. I was especially glad to get a talk with you about Buddhism, as you are, I think, the only man whose preaching ever made a sensible difference in my life. I'll stick it out here a little longer till I find the bottom of this thing. He also mentions his interest in psychology and Buddhism. Quote, what I want to get at is the point where the two meet. Unless all the collateral evidence is misleading, there's something big at that point of contact, he wrote. Bigelow was right instinctively. The last century has certainly indicated that there is something big, so to speak, where Buddhism and psychology meet. He'd be fascinated by the range of today's mind-body clinics and programs, including those sponsored by his own alma mater, Harvard Medical School, where, quote, Buddhist meditation becomes the starting point for psychological and physiological healing, for pain management, and other things as well. In the early 1890s, when Bigelow returned to Boston, he contributed to the intellectual and spiritual encounter of the West with the Buddhist tradition. In the Ingersoll Lecture at Harvard Divinity School, he tackled for a Boston audience one of the topics that was most baffling to the individual spirit in America, the Buddhist understanding of no-self and the interdependence and conditioned co-arising of all things, which we spoke of last time. From Bigelow's archival letters and papers, it's clear that he felt increasingly spiritually isolated, living as he did in the world of Boston clubs and Boston Episcopalians, where his Buddhist meditation practice was seen as eccentric and basically incomprehensible. Bigelow lived out his last years alone with the Buddhist practice and philosophy that he had made his own over many years. When he died, he was laid out in his Buddhist robes in his elegant townhouse overlooking the Boston Common. His funeral took place at Trinity Church, the great Episcopal church on Copley Square, where he was a member. Half his ashes were then buried at Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge, and the other half sent for interment, as he wished, at the Homyoin Monastery in Japan. A divided soul... To the end. I often imagine William Sturgis Bigelow back in Boston today. What companionship he would have found in his dedication to Buddhist practice. He would find more than a dozen Boston meditation centers offering teaching and practice of a whole range of Buddhist practice methods. Zen Buddhist practice, Korean Zen chanting, mindfulness vipassana meditation, 
Tibetan practice. He would find that some of the many hundreds of Bostonians who repair to these centers on a weekly basis or a daily basis are Episcopalians, as he was. There would be discussions to explore the braiding of Christian faith and Buddhist practice. Considering the very individual divided life of Bigelow just 100 years ago makes us realize how much, how much more common this reality of living into and out of more than one tradition of faith is in today's world in the West. What do we make of it? First, I would say we know that this border crossing makes many people uneasy, especially those in traditions that have a fairly strong doctrinal border or fence. On Rose Street near Charlotte Square, where I've been staying, is a Baptist church with a prominent sign, one way, no two ways about it. And while Buddhists may take the teaching of the braided traditions in stride, many Christians clearly don't. Second, we could say that this reminds those of us who study religion of those cultures in which what we call different religions were always braided in traditions of life and practice. In traditional Japan, for example, where until the late 19th century, the fusion of Shinto and Buddhist life was normative. Japanese did not think they were, indeed they were not, participating in two traditions of faith. And even today, a person in Japan might stop at a Shinto shrine every morning on the way to work, might get married eventually in a Christian ceremony, celebrate a child's birth at a Shinto shrine, and turn to a Buddhist idiom for funerals and for rites of mourning. Third, what we call border crossings reminds those of us who study religion that cultural and religious traditions are constantly in the process of dynamic change. Religions are not, after all, boxes of doctrines and practice and artifacts that are sort of passed from hand to hand through the generations, but they're living streams of faith and thought and practice that are carried by whole communities and by individuals as well. They change, and they change in relation to new cultures and new ideas and new times. The encounters of faith and science are reshaping our traditions today. And so are the encounters of each faith with the life and thought and practice and presence of the other among the social and political and cultural challenges of our time is that encounter. Today, many people, especially in the West, have lived with fairly coherent religious worlds, and they increasingly encounter other religious worlds. Whether through reading or travel or personal experience or friendship, they find images and texts and teachings and ideas of value, not just for the others, but somehow for themselves. Belgian scholar Catherine Corneille has collected a whole set of contributions of several Christians who in her volume, Many Mansions, Multiple Religious Belonging and Christian Identity, explore their own experience with multiple religious belonging. In her introductory essay, she puts the question this way. 
In a world of seemingly unlimited choice in matters of religious identity and affiliation, the idea of belonging exclusively to one religious tradition or drawing from only one set of spiritual, symbolic, or ritual resources is no longer self-evident. Why restrict oneself to the historically and culturally determined symbols and rituals of one religious tradition and the rich diversity of symbols and rituals presenting themselves to the religious imagination is simply ignored? Or why search for answers to the fundamental questions of life in only one religion when so many alternative proposals by time-honored traditions are readily available? End quote. These are the kinds of questions that arise most commonly today in the West, where individualism and choice is taken for granted even in matters of religion. In his book, After Heaven, the American sociologist Robert Wuthnow describes one of the restructurings, as he put it, of American religion in the late 20th century. And perhaps this restructuring applies to Europe as well. That the religiousness of dwelling, of being at home in a religious tradition, in a particular house or community, has for many become increasingly replaced by a religiousness of seeking, in which our religious lives are more pilgrimages of sorts, in which we may rest in many dwellings, but not entirely within one. It's also part of the turn away from what some call institutional religion, identifying religion with this visible cultural institution, sometimes even with buildings, that have long been home to its communities, and a turn toward what is so widely known as spirituality, which for some simply seems to indicate the inner dimension of religion. So the complexity of the inner world. Let me offer some examples of this complexity in our inner worlds. The inner worlds we human beings inhabit are always complicated, and that complexity, like the diversity of cultures and religions, is simply a fact of our lives. At one level, it's simply the complexity of having mothers and fathers, our mother's kin, our father's kin, our teachers, for better or for worse, our brothers and sisters, our friends and roommates, different people, different voices, in relation to whom we practice the multiple adjustments of growth. Hopefully, we become truly dialogical persons, exercising our own voice, indeed, the multiple registers of our own voice, constantly engaged with others, as we are, as Michael Sandel often puts it, multiply situated selves. Among these complexities is the encounter with religious difference. For citizens of Leith here in Edinburgh, for example, it might mean passing the old church that's become a Sikh Gurdwara every day on the way to work. And it may mean being surprised, even delighted one day by the Sikhs' festive Vaishakhi parade through the streets. It might mean accepting that Sikh invitation to the neighborhood to come inside the Gurdwara for a Sunday service and a langar meal. Who knows where it ends? The sociologist Peter Berger describes in his colloquial, colloquial way, he always has 
colloquialisms for many things, he describes what happens when the so-called fences of religion are breached. And I quote, neighbors lean over the fence, talk to each other, associate with each other. Inevitably, what then begins to occur is what I have termed cognitive contamination. The different lifestyles, values, and beliefs begin to mingle, end quote. Now, I find Berger's term cognitive contamination too strong and actually negative for what I mean, but it gets our attention. This leaning over the fence may happen quite naturally in our neighborhoods, in the increasingly diverse workplace, for example. The leaning over the fence might be a deliberately constructed interfaith encounter, like some we have studied and that I have described in these lectures, the dinner parties in Houston, for example, the Abrahamic building projects in Amman, Jordan, or the faith pilgrimages here in the Interfaith Association of Edinburgh, visiting several religious uh, communities, Syriatum. That leaning over the fence might be through our reading or our studying, encountering the world of religious ideas through the Buddhist Lotus Sutra, for example, or the writings of Thich Nhat Hanh. For some, it may be through the widening world of media, where we see a public television special on the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca, and find it moving. Those of us who study the history of religions know that this leaning over the fence has long been the case, in some cultures more intensively than others. Today, however, the frequency of our leaning over our fences has grown exponential, exponentially. And I might say parenthetically, so has the counter-movement of constructing sturdier and more imposing fences and even walls. There's a continuum in this fence leaning. At the very most basic level, they might be a simple conversation from my yard to yours following which I might sit on the steps of my own house and think about our conversation. At the other end of the spectrum, I might actually find myself in your yard, and I might find myself so at home there that I sit on your steps and find them a good place to sit and think and maybe have a drink. Who knows what happens next? We have dinner together. We frequent one another's yards and homes. We're guests, perhaps, in one another's places, but uh, we have deeply become neighbors. So let me think a little bit about this inner dialogue. What happens when I encounter something brand new? At first, at just a basic level, on the level of ideas. Thus begins what Hannah Arendt calls that soundless, solitary dialogue we call thinking. Consider Margaret, a student from Oregon in, American, in the American West, who encounters the Bhagavad Gita for the first time, perhaps in a college course. She struggles to understand a perspective on death and life and rebirth and ethics that is at first quite foreign to her. She participates vigorously in the class discussion. Why, she asks, is it ethical to act without attachment to the fruits of action? as Krishna tells Arjuna in the Gita. Perhaps she writes a term paper on this question. In the course of this, perhaps she reads an article by a college professor in New York, an Anglican Christian, who has written a commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, asking, 
what can we learn about Jesus, the religious life and our Christian heritage from looking at ourselves through the lens of the Bhagavad Gita? Margaret sometimes thinks about the Gita quite apart from class when she is at home. When her grandmother dies, she wonders what it would be like truly to affirm that death is not the opposite of life, but is the opposite of birth. Sometimes in church, she imagines that brilliant revelation of Krishna showing himself to the hero Arjuna with the light of a thousand suns, encompassing and transcending all that is simultaneously holy and terrifying. And she learns that when J. Robert Oppenheimer, scientist on the Manhattan Project, witnessed the first nuclear explosion in Almogoro, New Mexico on July 16, 1945, the words that came to his mind were from that same theophany of Krishna in chapter 11 of the Gita. If the radiance of a thousand suns were to burst forth at once in the sky, that would be like the splendor of the mighty one. I have become death, the shatterer of worlds. Now, Margaret, of course, does not become a Hindu, but the song of God, the Bhagavad Gita, has become part of her inner life. There is no delete button to leave this behind as she moves out and graduates and goes on with her life. The encounter is not just out there, it's within. Our inner landscape is shaped and reshaped not only by what we read and study and think about, but also, of course, by the people who come into our lives. Consider Alex, a young man from Arkansas, a devout and evangelical Methodist, who arrives at Harvard College as a freshman and finds that his roommate, Ben, is a devout Orthodox Jew. Ben is the first one up every morning. He straps on his tefillin, does his morning prayers in his room every single day. Alex is astonished. He comes from what he had considered an active church life, but he had never encountered this kind of daily devotion. The friendship of Alex and Ben develops through their college years. They remain roommates. They visit each other's homes. They attend a common Passover Seder. They participate eventually in each other's weddings. They are part of each other's inner landscape. In one of my introductory religion classes, I ask students to write a reflective paper on these kinds of encounters. What is the most significant encounter you have had with someone of another cultural or religious tradition. Or if you are not religious at all, write about an encounter you have had with someone who is. What did you learn from this about the other person, about yourself? Anne, a sophomore from Minneapolis and a lifelong Lutheran, wrote about hearing the Dalai Lama on a multi-religious panel on the environment back home in Minneapolis. I quote her. Even today, five years later, I can still remember sitting in that auditorium, being struck by the complexity of religious identity. I had been raised and confirmed a Lutheran, but what did that really mean? Listening to the dialogue of the various religious leaders, I realized that the person I agreed most with was the Dalai Lama. And the reasoning that best dealt with the questions raised and that best represented my own beliefs about acceptance, nonviolence, and the environment was not, as I had hoped, 
the Protestant views, but rather the Buddhist ideas as explained by the Dalai Lama. This was her question. Her experience is not so uncommon these days. It's not just that we have ready access to great religious texts, but to teachers as well. And when Anne shared her thoughts with some of her Christian classmates in high school, they were shocked. A close friend told her, if you accept this, then you're not a good Christian. I would kill to defend my God. Anne was shocked herself. She said, I knew there were people in the world willing to fight for their religion, but I always assumed they were fanatics. It took my encounter with the Dalai Lama and the contemplation of the issues he raised for me to realize how complex faith can be and why this results in complex social issues that tear people apart. In this case, Anne's subsequent inner dialogue was not only with Buddhist ideas, but also with other Christians whose absolutism and imperial certainty also confounded her. What did it mean to be a Christian who finds the Dalai Lama's way of looking at things compelling? What does it mean to be a Christian who disagrees with the absolutism and certainty of other Christians? Now, I cast these three as experiences of students, but this kind of encounter that somehow transforms our inner landscape is not limited to those formative student years. This happens throughout our lives as we encounter and assess difference. A few months ago, I took a group of ministry students and local pastors to the Saturday morning Abhisheka of Lord Vishnu at the Hindu temple in the Boston suburbs. And Abhisheka means a kind of royal shower bath that is offered both to kings at the time of their coronation, but also uh, to gods. We stood just outside the inner sanctum in that special spacious temple gazing through the door as the priest chanted in Sanskrit the Vishnu Sahasranama, the thousand names of Vishnu. And while he made a series of honor offerings to this eight-foot-high granite image, he poured water over the head and body of the image, and then milk, then water, then honey, then water, then yogurt, turmeric, orange juice, aromatic sandal paste, and there was a final oblation of water, and the curtain was closed. When we saw Vishnu again, he was clothed in silk, and the priest presented offerings of fruit and water, incense, and finally the oil lamps that were presented as the offerings of arati. Gracefully moving that multi-wicked oil lamp before the face of Vishnu, the priest illumined each feature of the divine face. And then turning from his offerings to Vishnu, the priest came out of the inner sanctum and presented the oil lamp to the Hindus who were gathered there and to each of us. The priest distributed then the water scented with camphor that had been used to bathe the image of Vishnu, spooning a drop of it into the cupped hands of the worshipers as they stood outside. Now, I had told these ministry students and clergy ahead of time about this moment. They could either touch the flame and touch their own heads or not. They could sip the water or not. It was offered freely in hospitality to them and to all, but that their own boundaries and understandings 
should determine whether or not they wanted to receive these offerings, offerings that were, after all, called prasad, literally grace, the divine grace of God. Now, the dialogue that followed with our Hindu interlocutors raised many of the questions that these clergy and ministry students had. The image itself, what did it mean? The worship of the image, uh, all of this had particular resonances in their minds. Kumar, the MIT computer scientist who is the temple president, spoke about their understanding of the divine and of the image, the one with a thousand names, Vishnu, stretching through all space and time, but the one who graciously comes into being in name and form in ways that often surprise us. This image incarnation, as they called it, is one of the ways in which the divine graciously becomes present, precisely so that we may practice the arts of relationship, of love, of devotion, reciprocity, hospitality, that are important for us to practice. Vaishnava Hindus speak of God in two dimensions, he explained, the one who is wholly transcendent and the one who is simultaneously accessible. By grace alone, God becomes present in name and form, in temple and image, so that we may apprehend and glimpse the divine. In my own words, I put it this way. God's presence here in the world in which we live, is not limited by God's capacity to be present, but only by our capacity to see, to sense, to be alert to the many forms of that presence. Later that day, back at the university, we had our own discussion of what we had all experienced. For some, it had elicited the eye-opening appreciation of the power of the image, Never before had they witnessed a stream of milk flowing over the granite image of God. They would have to think deeply about this, what it meant. They would carry that image with them in their minds. And we discussed what it meant to be a guest in a very different tradition, a different house of faith. What did it mean to sip the water that had washed Vishnu's granite form, and some had, in fact, done that? What did it mean not to? Did we think that God was present in this sanctum on Saturday morning? Is Vishnu God? Now, frankly, most of them had never tackled such a blunt question in their systematic theology classes. They were at loss to say. What does it mean that we received God's grace in another tradition? In this context, I'd like to turn very briefly to the counterpart of this in the thought of Felix Wilfred, who is a Christian teaching in South India, in Chennai. And he writes about crossing ritual boundaries from the other standpoint. He writes, participating in religious rituals and festivals of neighbors, accepting them and welcoming them in our rites, will be an important opening for Asian Christian Christianity in the future. He said, in a survey conducted in South India, some 75% of Hindus would desire to participate in, in Christian worship. Failing to integrate them within the worship cannot but cause a sense of exclusion, he said. It's viewed as deriving from rigidly maintained boundaries. 
Christians vis-a-vis Hindus usually argue that one who does not share the faith can also not share the worship. But Hindu friends understand the same principle quite the opposite, in an inclusive manner. To them, faith exclu- no faith excludes another faith, since faith cannot be opposed to faith. And so Christian understandings of scandal, the scandal of participation in another faith, looks to Hindus like sectarianism and communalism. The rituals, it's true, contribute to creating bonds of community. But the rituals need also tend toward the larger community. And there is even a certain responsibility for religious rituals toward this goal. We need to think about that. Now, beyond encounter to practice. Let's move further along that continuum of fence leaning. Uh, And leaning a bit further, we discover not only those who study the scriptures and visit in one another's homes and temples, hear one another's teachers, but who actually undertake the practice of something associated with another religious tradition. I'm quite certain that never before in history have there been so many Christians and Jews who have undertaken the practice of what we might call Buddhist meditation. There are many individual Christian practitioners who found depth and stillness and the arts of attention that they cultivate within a Buddhist contemplative practice to be precisely what enables them to be still in the presence of God and to pray. Buddhist meditation enables them to cultivate an inner dimension in a tradition that many have felt to be too noisy and wordy. There are small communities that cultivate just this practice, like the one that began in Boston and now is located in western Massachusetts, called the Empty Bell. It's a small Christian community with a regular sitting meditation practice, and its leader, Robert Jonas, and most of the members are indeed Christian, at least in origin. Most important for the community that gathers is this sitting practice, a period of silence announced by the sounding of the bell, and only later are there vocalized and verbally articulated prayers. The Empty Bell is one of a growing number of practice centers that are grounded in Christianity, but incorporate a practice that tends to be taught more within Buddhist practice centers, Vipassana or Zen centers. There is a home tradition from which one moves out, so to speak, crosses over to another tradition, returns as in the paradigm of John Donne, uh, the scholar John Donne, that is, uh, returns to a deeper appreciation often uh, of the contemplation and traditions of prayer too often neglected within Christianity. For Jews, there also is the appeal of an inner life in a tradition that has been preoccupied to some extent with the Holocaust remembrance, with social justice issues, with the identity and security of Israel. It's left many people feeling empty. And in 1990, Roger Kamenetz, the author of The Jew in the Lotus, accompanied a group of 10 American Jews to Dharamsala in India to meet with the Dalai Lama. For his part, the Dalai Lama was mostly interested in how it is that Jews had been able to survive and thrive in a long exile, a long diaspora. From the standpoint of the Jews, however, the most important and urgent question was why it is that so many young Jews had taken up Buddhist practice. There were many mutual discussions and discoveries in 
these four days of dialogue. And Kamenetz, when he sat down to try to write about why this had happened, began this way. The house of Judaism in North America has not been satisfactorily built. It does not have a spiritual dimension for many Jews. Too many are like me. Our Jewishness has been an inchoate mixture of nostalgia, family feeling, group identification, a smattering of Hebrew, concern for Israel, and so forth. It just wasn't enough. Buddhist practice has opened many Jews to an inner religious life, and to some, the treasures of Judaism's own mysticism, the Kabbalah. Now, a step further along this continuum is what we might call ordination, or in the Buddhist case, teaching transmission. In this tradition, to be certified as a teacher is not a matter of passing exams or courses or getting a degree, but being recognized in wisdom and insight by those who have gone before. For many of Jewish origin, many who have become recognized teachers in the Buddhist tradition, this crossing over has been complete, and they identify primarily as Buddhist. I think of some of the great Buddhist teachers in the United States, Joseph Goldstein, for example, Sharon Salzberg, Sylvia Borstein, all basically their home tradition was Judaism. Many of them, by the way, are also transforming the Buddhist practice and the Buddhist tradition in the American context, where there are many more women who are teachers, many more lay people who are teachers, where the monastic orders are not so important, and where a different language of expression and analogy is brought into Buddhist teaching and transmission. Now, in the Christian case, there are also those who not only practice, but who have become recognized as teachers. In February 2009, just this year, the Northern Michigan Diocese of the Episcopal Church elected the Reverend Kevin Forrester as its bishop. For nearly a decade, Forrester had also been practicing Zen meditation and had been through the process of lay ordination. I quote, I have been blessed to practice Zen meditation for almost a decade, he said. About five years ago, a Buddhist community welcomed me as an Episcopal priest in my commitment to meditation practice, a process known by some Buddhists as lay ordination. He describes himself as, quote, walking the path of Christianity and Zen Buddhism together. Some critics in the church see this dual religious practice, at least at the level of priesthood, to be a commitment to more than one way, syncretism, pure and simple. Forrester himself does not see it that way, but continues to see his Zen practice as a form of prayer, deepening his sense of the presence of God. It remains to be seen if a sufficient majority of the Council of Bishops will confirm his election. Perhaps the Buddhist-Christian balance will be easier to maintain within the Episcopal Church than the Christian-Muslim faith claimed by Episcopal priest Anne Holmes Redding in Seattle, who became a practicing and praying Muslim about three years ago. The Seattle Times has followed the story from the beginning, and I'll cite a bit of their story. Three years ago, Redding attended an interfaith gathering, see how dangerous this can be, where she said she was moved by Muslim prayers. She said she felt an overwhelming conviction to surrender to God, and soon after, she became a practicing Muslim. Convinced that her new Muslim faith did not contradict her belief as a 
follower of Christ, Redding declared that she was both a Muslim and a Christian. And I quote, both religions say there's only one God and that God is the same God. It's very clear we're talking about the same God, so I haven't shifted my allegiance, she said. While her colleagues in Seattle regarded her with the utmost integrity, those who had known her through the years, her home bishop in Rhode Island gave her a deadline, some time to think it over, and then either recant her Islamic ties or resign. That deadline was March 31st, 2009, and on April 1st, she was removed as an Episcopal priest. Of course, in thinking about such an instance of dual commitment, one would want to know how the Muslim community with whom she worshipped also regarded her commitment. But it's another instance of the ways in which these boundaries have somehow been crossed and two traditions claimed. Now, the Catholic Church has a long tradition of intermonastic dialogue. Well, relatively long. It dates back to the years immediately following Vatican II. At first, it almost seemed as if monks and nuns were to be the, for, the, the, the forerunners of real uh, interfaith dialogue. They were to be the front lines of the movements uh, toward interfaith dialogue. And over these decades, the monastic interreligious dialogue has organized monastic exchanges that are far more extensive than brief dialogue encounters. They engage in meditation practice together, sometimes over many weeks, Cistercians and Tibetans, Benedictines and Zen practitioners. In the late 1900s, 1990s, one of these dialogue encounters took place at the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky, where the Trappist Thomas Merton had lived for many years. Merton, as you may recall, left the monastery only late in life to travel to Asia, where he met the young Dalai Lama, which made a profound and powerful impression on both of them. Merton spoke of what he called the dialogue of those who have kept their silences. You may recall that Merton died accidentally of electrocution on that journey to Asia, but the journey has continued. Merton then even had a premonition of what the days and decades ahead would mean. In the volume that was published as Asian Journals, we find some notes for a talk he gave in Calcutta in October of 1968, just before he died. And I quote, I think we have now reached a stage of, quote, of Peren long overdue religious maturity, at which it may be possible for someone to remain perfectly faithful to a Christian and Western monastic commitment, and yet to learn in depth from, say, a Buddhist or Hindu discipline and experience. I believe that some of us, he said, need to do this in order to improve the quality of our own monastic life. In the Gethsemane encounter of which I spoke in 1996, Buddhist and Christian monastics and contemplatives met together for an entire week in the chapter room and in the chapel of Gethsemane Abbey, sharing not papers about their uh, traditions of contemplation or spirituality, but sharing their experiences from the depth of that contemplation and meditation. In the summer of 2004, then, in Spencer, Massachusetts, at St. Joseph's Trappist Abbey, Kevin Hunt, a priest of the Abbey, 
was installed as a Zen teacher with the title sensei, meaning teacher. Jesuit Robert Kennedy Roshi was in charge of the installation. Hunt was one of those who had been involved for many years in the intermonastic dialogue, including that Gethsemane encounter. He sees no contradiction between Buddhist meditation practice, even though Buddhism is non-theistic, and Christian faith. Indeed, he sees the encounter of Christianity and Buddhism to be much like that of the encounter with Platonic and Aristotelian thought in the early days of the church. One of my own colleagues, a Jesuit, Francis Clooney, gives us an example of the inner encounter of dialogue as an academic and also as a Jesuit. Uh, the ways in which the academic study of texts side by side is not only illumining as an exercise in comparative theology, but can, at least for him as a Jesuit, create a new kind of spiritual ancestry. In Clooney's case, this dual spiritual ancestry, Christian and Hindu, comes not only through the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius Loyola, but also through his own deep scholarly study of the Sri Vaishnava tradition. As a comparative theologian, he has done what Wilfred Cantwell Smith long ago imagined, taking seriously the understandings of equally devout and equally intelligent Hindus on their own terms. A scholar of both Tamil and Sanskrit, Clooney has studied the devotional texts and interpretations of Sri Vaishnavas, and in one essay he writes of one of the poems attributed to the Saint Antal, a woman saint a thousand years ago, a deep devotee of Lord Vishnu in his holy sanctuary at Sri Rangam in uh, Trichy in South India. She is a young woman, Andal, whose songs to the Lord are resting in their devotion. The Lord appears to her in a dream, according to tradition, and chooses her to enter his temple as bride. She sings a simple verse that has been cherished and repeated by the tradition for more than a thousand years. Whichever form pleases his people, that is his form. Whichever name pleases his people, that is his name. Whichever way pleases his people who meditate without ceasing, that is his way. That one, that Vishnu, who holds the discus. Now Clooney writes, my hypothesis is that in contemplation, we construct a path of religious belonging that suits our own spiritual imagining. We do this according to our traditions, but also according to the possibilities of our time and place. In all this, God agrees to meet us there. If our contemplation happens to cross religious boundaries, God agrees to meet us there too. Both Vaishnava and Christian traditions, he writes, teach us to see how God wishes to be recognized in recognizable terms. According to each, he writes, uh, each can be reviewed in the light of the other as old and new visions of God are refracted in the proximity of the two. And reading these two traditions in light of the other, Clooney develops a deeper and more complex sense of how it is that human beings encounter God. In doing so, he says, we become persons with complex religious identities. 
In the end, as a Jesuit Catholic, he affirms how we meet God depends in part on how generously open, imaginative, vacant, we stand in expectation of this God who promises to adjust to us, accommodating to us as we are. Clooney, perhaps more than any of my dialogical colleagues, demonstrates over and over what it is to read intertextually in two traditions. One could leave it there as a scholar, one's mind becoming the very place where these traditions engage one another. Or one could go further and take these two traditions side by side into one's own life of prayer and meditation, as Clooney has. And I quote again, if our contemplation happens to cross religious boundaries, God agrees to meet us there too. Families and spiritual ancestry. While we're speaking of ancestry, let's at least acknowledge briefly the intimate side of that encounter of faith and cultural traditions in marriages and families. Our spiritual ancestry is always complex. And if, like Clooney, we take up the serious study of a tradition of faith other than our own, that becomes part of our spiritual ancestry. I've explained what this has entailed for me in my book, writing Encountering God, A Spiritual Journey from Bozeman to Benares, and I won't repeat those tales here. But let me say that for all this and for all the new spiritual ancestors I accumulated in Benares and elsewhere, my immediate family ancestry was really rather simple. All of them were immigrants to America. All were Swedish Lutherans, at least until my parents joined the Methodist Church. But for many people, the pluralism within comes from far more complex families, marriages and families that themselves embody this diversity. My students often tell me, my mother is Jewish, my father is Catholic, my mother is Unitarian, my father Muslim, my dad practices Buddhism, my mom's an atheist. The dialogue is there simply from the beginning, spoken and unspoken. The American Jewish Population Survey in 2001 indicated that for Jews married before 1970, the intermarriage rate was 13%. For those married since 1996, it is 46%. A recent American Religious Identity Survey had Protestants intermarrying at the rate of 33% and Catholics 23%. The racial and religious complexity of families, not only in America but around the world, today is astonishing. It is the intimate site of that encounter with the other, the racial, the religious other. The New York Times, in writing right after the inauguration of Barack Obama, said this, the family that produced Barack and Michelle Obama is black and white and Asian, Christian, Muslim, and Jewish. They speak English, Indonesian, French, Cantonese, German, Hebrew, and African languages, including Swahili, Luo, and Igbo. That is our first family today. In Indonesia, where Barack Obama spent several childhood years, the confluences of culture is also common. Not always easy, however, Intermarriage is very difficult in Indonesia. But the 2000 census reported that 88% of Indonesians are Muslim, 8.9% Christian, 1.8% Hindu, 1% Buddhist. But only these five traditions are recognized. 
And within these parameters, there are countless personal stories of pluralism written into the lives of Indonesian families. A young woman whose mother is Balinese Hindu and father is Muslim falls in love with a man who is Chinese Indonesian Catholic. Their little child Nayanda is born with a Muslim prayer whispered in her ear and Hindu Catholic and Muslim grandparents looking on. We begin to see why the Ulama Council of Indonesia was frightened of this as they were declaring pluralism to be forbidden uh, at the time of their fatwa that I mentioned in the second lecture. They also put the forbidden mark on intermarriage for it is this very basic sociological unit of pluralism that begins to break down the unity of a society. Demographic data can tell us much about the statistics of intermarriage, but it does not tell us the stories of pluralism. How it is that people manage their lives? Does the intermarried couple do both, as they sometimes say? Both traditions? Neither tradition? Does one partner convert? Do they both drift away from their communities? Ideas of religious tolerance may be seriously challenged when it comes to the intimate circle of the family. The Hindu couple whose daughter married a Jewish boy were at first appreciative of the tradition of their new in-laws, all paths, etc. But when they attended the bar mitzvah of their first grandson, having gone to Hebrew school, they were suddenly heartbroken, realizing that the tradition they knew had been broken. If this were not a problem, we would not be seeing the rise of projects, at least in the United States, projects and support groups to think about these issues, such as the Interfaith Families Project, the Dovetail Institute for Interfaith Family Resources, or the growth of interfaith families sites on beliefnet.org. Several couples interviewed for Kate McCarthy's recent study of interfaith families describe what they hope for their children as being bilingual, having the richness and advantage of participation and fluency in two religious traditions. Difference is where we begin in the age of pluralism. And those who are about the daily business of negotiating differences in the context of family are on the front lines. There is much here to be studied and learned. Now, in drawing these lectures to conclusion, let me make some final remarks. I've articulated these lectures as the age of pluralism, and it's clear that in the last few decades, we have seen augmented the importance of being able to describe the changing reality of our times with migration of peoples, with rapid communications, recognizing that what we experience today is completely new in a religious context. And we must take stock of how we will deal with this new diversity in our societies. Long, not long ago, there was a sign posted on a bulletin board at Harvard Divinity School Diversity is excellence, it said. As you can tell from this set of lectures, I would probably take issue with this. Diversity alone is not excellence. Diversity is just a fact. And the currents and energies of religion in all its diversity are increasingly salient facts of the world in which we live. We may deal with diversity in either excellent or impoverished ways. We may ignore those who differ from us, 
we may isolate ourselves from them, or we may encounter them as fellow citizens in nations and cities. We may encounter them as neighbors of other faiths. As Wilfred Cantwell Smith put it a generation ago, and I quote, the new world situation with its multicultural dimensions involves our political leaders, our intellectuals, our trading economy, our planning engineers, and in the end, all of us in our daily contacts. Fundamentally, I think it is hardly going too far to say that finally, one must become a new type of person to live aptly in the new world community that is struggling to come to birth. This is true on the religious level as well. So let me make four points about pluralism. First, pluralism is not the fact of diversity alone, but with that energetic engagement with that diversity. Diversity has and can mean the creation of religious ghettos with little traffic between or among them. But this is an age of traffic and lots of it. It's an observable fact of our world that this encounter is taking place, whether in the ways in which secular France wrestled with the claims of new veil-wearing French citizens, or the ways in which Buddhists and Jews encounter one another on a spiritual path, or the ways in which Somali Muslims and Lutherans encounter one another in the suburbs of Minneapolis. These encounters, by the way, are not all about hand-holding and understanding. Pluralism begins with difference, and pluralism is not devoid of dissension, argument, and disagreement. In this world of diversity, pluralism is not a given but an achievement, and mere diversity without the real encounter and relationship that are constitutive of pluralism will be increasingly dangerous. Second, pluralism is not just about tolerance. In fact, it is not tolerance, but the active seeking of understanding. Tolerance is a good thing to be sure, but it does not require Christians and Muslims, Hindus and Jews, and ardent secularists to know anything about one another. Tolerance is simply too thin a foundation for a world of religious difference. It leaves in place the stereotypes of one another, the half-truths, the fears that underlie old patterns of division and violence. A culture of pluralism will require a new level of religious literacy. It requires not only more languages, but more religious languages. For in the world in which we live today, the world of the internet and rocket speed communications, our ignorance of one another will be increasingly costly. Third, pluralism is not a free-form relativism in which one's own particular religious perspective is, after all, just one perspective. The age of pluralism does not require us to leave our identities, our commitments, and our particular communities behind or at home or in the past. Not at all. Pluralism is the encounter of commitments, not the abandonment of them. It means holding our deepest differences even our religious differences, not in isolation, but in relationship to each other. The language of pluralism is the language of dialogue and encounter, of give and take and criticism and self-criticism. And in the world of today, this language of dialogue is one we need to learn, a language of careful listening as well as speaking in a world in which we need to be able to articulate not only our own deepest hopes, 
but the viewpoint of another. Fourth, put in slightly different way, pluralism is not an ideology or a new universal theology. It's not the supersession of difference. Rather, pluralism is a process, the dynamic process, through which we engage with one another and through and in and out of our deepest differences. Through this engagement, new theological understandings may emerge. We may well have more common words that emerge together. But the premise of pluralism is not to create a single platform on which we all stand or a single canopy under which we all gather. It is to create a new set of relationships, the bridging relationships that are increasingly vital in a world of difference. In the age of pluralism, we will not be able to melt away the differences in a global melting pot, nor fuse our differences in a global synthesis. Once again, pluralism is about the integrity and encounter of diversity and difference. From a civic standpoint, that does not require the shedding of distinctive cultural, religious, or political differences, but the effort to create societies out of those differences. And from a religious standpoint, pluralism does not require the diluting of one's own faith, but the encounter of one's own faith with others. Thinking over this past week, pluralism is a global reality. Communications circle the globe, as do students and doctors and engineers and religious leaders. The Sheikh of Al-Azhar flies to Geneva to meet Agnivesh, both to talk with Karen Armstrong about the meanings of compassion and a worldwide charter of compassion. Pluralism is the reality of nations as our societies wrestle with new levels of difference. Pluralism is the reality and challenge of our cities, the new cosmopolis, the new world cities that are our workshops in this age of pluralism. And pluralism is a reality faced by people of faith in all traditions who are attempting to articulate their ethic and understanding and faith in their own language, in their own way, and in a way adequate to the responsibilities and ethics of the age. And finally, pluralism is also increasingly our inner reality as we work out within ourselves the tensions and practices that become part of our inner world. Again, as Wilfred Cantwell Smith said, I think it is hardly going too far to say that one must become a new type of person to live aptly in the new world community that is struggling to come to birth. Thank you very much. has set it all. In August 1945, the, the Harvard-educated Episcopalian author James Agee contributed an essay to Time magazine on the dropping of the atomic bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that radiance of a thousand suns that consumed tens of thousands of lives. His essay climaxed with these words. 
When the bomb split open the universe and revealed the prospect of the infinitely extraordinary, it also revealed the oldest, simplest, commonest, most neglected and most important of facts, that each man is eternally and above all else responsible for his own soul, and in the terrible words of the psalmist, that no man may deliver his brother nor make agreement unto God for him. That no man may deliver his brother nor make agreement unto God for him. But throughout history, human societies have sought to do just that. Rulers, states, established churches, covenanted nations, majority religious traditions, empires, absolutists, extremists, terrorists have been prepared to deliver their brothers and sisters and to make agreement unto God for them. The result has been untold suffering. And in the Balkans, New York, Afghanistan, Iraq, London, Bali, and Mumbai, we've seen more recent evidence of this human propensity. In her series of Gifford lectures, Professor Eck has spoken with great passion and eloquence of the need for this to stop. We have entered, she has told us, a new age of pluralism in which massive migrations of peoples and new media technologies have rendered encounters with those of other faiths pervasive and unavoidable. We live together as never before. And the temptation to make our own agreements unto God for those others, now our neighbors, to deliver them up is greater than ever. And hovering in the background of her analysis is the, the nuclear bomb. The ever-present threat that in an era of nuclear proliferation soon some group or another will gain the capacity to destroy whole cities, whole societies, whole ecosystems and deliver up millions. Deliver up millions. We may be living in that end time. And yet, with, with passion and eloquence and learning, Professor Eck has spoken in her lectures of another way. The way of understanding, of, of leaning over fences, mutual respect, humility in the face of, of great mysteries, reconciliation and love. With a global, an impressive global and historical perspective, She's provided numerous examples of human efforts in local communities, in civic governments, among religious thinkers and activists, within individual minds to recognize the limits of all our religious constructs, to identify with more than one religious tradition, to cross borders, to recognize, as the great Max Mueller observed, that all our religious formulas are Quote, but the stammerings of children, which only a loving father can interpret and understand. She summoned us to look to the grassroots efforts of countless men and women of different faiths, who sincerely hold their faiths, in different regions to walk together and grow and change together and live together in hope. 
The news media focus our minds on the episodes of religious violence, on communal murders, on the slaughter of innocents, in, in war, on the words and deeds of terrorists. And this has created an atmosphere of fear and distrust, dark habits of mind, a, a willingness to use torture, to launch preemptive wars, and to make our agreements unto God for others. But Professor Eck, with her intellectual roots in Indian spirituality, has called on us to, to focus on the, the less publicized, but the no less real episodes of creative engagement, of mutual enrichment through dialogue and encounter. For if we focus on those efforts towards positive encounter, mutual respect, growing together, leaning over fences, we may transcend the cycles of fear and violence. Now, while full of admiration for Professor Eck's lectures, some have suggested in the questions that her focus on religious thought and ideals has tended to play down the stark realities of religious conflict in our world or the, the social and economic factors that lay behind much religious conflict. Human societies, as Reinhold Niebuhr reminded us, pursue their naked self-interest. One class oppresses another. One race oppresses another. The majority religious tradition oppresses the minority. Imperialism is real and pervasive. Moral men live within immoral societies. And for moral people to cry peace and reconciliation when there is real injustice... And oppression may simply allow injustice and oppression to continue. In responding, Professor Eck has acknowledged the compelling reality of religious conflict and the material interests that lay behind religious conflict. But she's also steadfastly affirmed the importance of ideals, the spiritual dimension of religious faith, and the human potential the human potential to use our minds to shape new attitudes and a new future in our age of pluralism. And her lecture today was certainly optimistic and full of hope, and she's been right to do so, especially here in our Enlightenment University of Edinburgh. Professor Eck, we thank you for a powerful and timely series of Gifford Lectures we thank you for sharing so generously of your time and of your learning. We've greatly appreciated having you and the Reverend Dorothy Austin among us these past two weeks. We look forward to seeing your lectures in print, and we convey our best wishes for your safe return and for your vital work on behalf of a living pluralism in the heart in the coming years. Please join me in thanking. This production is copyright the University of Edinburgh. This production is copyright the University of Edinburgh.